welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Hello and welcome to Nelda Live. I'm here with Zach Bush, MD. Dr. Zach, it is so good to see you. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be on with you, Nelda, and the whole audience. Thank you all for joining. Dr. Zach, you are hardly a conventional doctor. Three board certifications, and I've heard you talk on everything from deep cell biology to the death experience. Tell us about your journey. That's right. That's right. There's, I've stumbled upon a term recently uh, by one of my colleagues in permaculture. There's a term that describes the perfect garden as the perfect meandering. And I kind of think that's my career. <laughs> <laughs> I've been meandering uh, to and fro, uh, looking for my path forward and purpose uh, on lots of levels, spiritually, physically, intellectually. And in that journey, uh, it took me from uh, auto mechanics back in the day. I was uh, into auto mechanics and engineering and thought I was going to go into engineering at the University of Colorado. Uh, and then uh, through a breakup when I was 18 years old with my first girlfriend, only as dramatic as you can possibly be at 18, I decided I needed a year off to recover from my heartbreak. And so I didn't go into engineering. Uh, and fortunately, that's exactly what happened. And so I'm glad I didn't become an engineer at that moment. I uh, went to the Philippines and birthed babies there with an aunt of mine who was working with a group of international midwives, and that really changed the course of my career. And so we moved from engineering mindset to one of medicine. At that point, I was not a good student, so I didn't uh, focus on being a medical doctor initially. I thought I was going to be a nurse or a nurse practitioner. Started down the pre-med pathway towards a nurse practitioner development, and this was in the early 90s when suddenly the, the physician assistant uh, field came of vogue and, and or birth and so I was thinking about being a PA for a while and uh, was intrigued by the surgical side. Uh, a lot of PAs were going into surgery rather than more the medicine side as the MPs were and I thought I was going to likely be a surgeon because I was good at working with my hands and engineering and all that. And, uh, and then I started into medical school um, uh, after a couple of, uh, you know, chance conversations made me realize that uh, I would have more flexibility in the directions I would go if I had the MD. So I uh, went ahead and uh, jumped towards the medical doctorate, didn't get into medical school the first year. Uh, I then uh, became an EMT and volunteered in an oncology ward in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and my, my role as a volunteer on that oncology ward was baking fresh cookies every week. And so <laughs> I had fresh cookies and take them in these rooms, not realizing at the time that uh, I was literally delivering the worst thing you could possibly give a cancer patient at that moment. I was absolutely fueling their their disease process, but I didn't know that, and I didn't, you know, uh, you know, I tried not to find guilt in that, just you know, hiding behind my ignorance at the time. <laughs> and then, um, you know, fast forward um, as I really got into medical school, um, I found an extraordinary capacity that I didn't know. I, I didn't know I could be an excellent student, but everything started making sense, and I was suddenly being taught on a very different level. I was being taught experientially and I was being taught uh, in a, a, a three-dimensional kind of model of how human health happened. And I was lacking that three-dimensional kind of real world 
matrix in the, in the 20 years of education that it had before that, I think. And so it was really exciting for me to find out that uh, I, I fact was a really good learner and I was a good synthesizer of data if I had the, had a, a three-dimensional model to work within and to build within my mind. And so that's what I've been doing the last 20 years is building that three-dimensional model through a lot of further education. I, I think I'm still a, very much a student. I'm learning all the time. I've got three subspecialties in medicine. I got uh, internal medicine first, which uh, is kind of the foundation of adult care, both in the outpatient environment as well as hospital care. So I ran a lot of hospital wards during those years. I was a chief resident at the University of Virginia, teaching residents and med students uh, on faculty. And uh, then went on to uh, get a subspecialty in endocrinology and metabolism, which is the study of hormones and how they control the body's uh, kind of symphony of, uh, of, of the organ system. And then from there got into cancer research uh, because of metabolism, because of the story about mitochondria. And so I became focused on mitochondria, which were really bizarre little entities that we were just starting to really come to understand at this era of the early 2000s. Uh, because uh, the genomics that we were starting to be able to do was really starting to tease out the extraordinary universe of these little bugs that live within our cells. And so that was my introduction into the, the fact that human cells really are not the center of human health. In fact, we rely on these tiny little organisms, these little tiny bacteria that live inside our cells that we call mitochondria. Uh, and they are fully dependent on their macro ecosystem to feed them. And so there's this extraordinary dance between bacteria within our gut and fungi, yeast, all of this, and these little mitochondria within our cells. And they do this biologic dance, turning ultimately carbon energy into light energy. And if you know anything about photosynthesis and how plants work, they take light and turn them into carbon energy. And so in the end, the microbiome is closing the loop on turning humans into biophotonic creatures. We run on light energy. And to do that, we have to rely on plants that rely on their microbiome to do this extraordinary conversion of sunlight into energy at the carbon level. The microbiome then digests all of that carbon substrate into millions of different variations. And then we consume that and turn that back into light en energy. And so it's this beautiful dance. And that's where cancer really came in, is when you break the biophotonics, when you break the cycle of not being able to turn energy back into light energy, uh, you, you start to develop the cancer phenomenon. And so that was where uh, the stage got set for me to leave academic medicine 10 years ago and start a nutrition center. Uh, and so I was really focused on how do we reconnect humans back to to the food and the, and the plant life. But I hadn't gotten to the soil yet. It took me a couple more years before I realized uh, that the, the food was failing and uh, the nutrition that had been working in the 1970s and 80s and 90s suddenly wasn't working anymore. And we were seeing increase in inflammation, not decrease in inflammation when we would take people off of processed food and put them on health food. At some point in your career as a practicing doctor, you found there was more to being a physician than you perhaps learned in medical school? It was a lot of, a lot of years set the stage for it, but it happened pretty rapidly when, when that shift started to happen. But the stage had to be set for, for about eight years. Eight, eight years of practicing medicine as a full-blown medical doctor was enough for me to start to see that our allopathic pharmaceutical model was utterly failing. Um, you come out of medical school and into medicine with this extraordinary expectation that you're going to fix everything, that you're going to have all of the tools necessary to really transform the world around us. And uh, 
once you become a physician, you start to longitudinally you know, follow patients uh, over the course of your treatment plans, you start to realize that the, there's a huge difference between making blood sugar look good or blood pressure look good or cholesterol panel look good and the outcome for the patient. And we're taught the, pr the, the primary outcomes of those kind of you know, uh, metrics of disease, ma the, the management of the metrics, but we're never really taught much about the management of a real human being and their, their socio-spiritual, physical journey that they go on. And it took me some years before I realized, you know, over that eight years that I was failing to be the person I wanted to be when I set out to be a physician. I wanted to be a healer. I wanted also, I wanted to be a, be a trusted, you know, source of, of confidence in my patients when it came to death and dying. I, and that was my third subspecialty was in hospice right. and palliative care uh, because I saw that, you know, the very best of what I could do didn't have to do with filling out a prescription it had to be, had to do with being human at the moment of a, of a human transformation or a human transition, whether that be birth, death, disease, healing, these big transformational cataclysmic events in our lives. That's when I felt most like a physician. That's when I felt most like, uh, you know, in my highest calling was, was being human in those moments. Am I wrong to suggest that we're seeing an epidemic of autism, IBS, Alzheimer's, Crohn's, Hashimoto's, and other chronic diseases? Is that a valid point of view? I think that's critical, and I appreciate the, the question, because uh, it, for all of us, including myself, it's easy for us to kind of be the, the frog in the boiling water, where because the water's been heating up for tw 25 years, we just don't notice how bad it's gotten. And uh, certainly all of the conditions you mentioned there will start with autism, you know, leading the charge perhaps as far as just the, the, being the canary in the coal mine. These children under the age of two are presenting suddenly with an acute neurologic injury. And remember, autism is not something you're born with. Autism spectrum is something that develops, you know, somewhere between typically 12 months of age and two years. And for the, the steepest bell curve of that is between 18 months and 24 months of age. And so in that short six-month period, these children go from normal milestones, you know, first words, crawling, walking, uh, you know, emotional connection with parents and all that. Suddenly, within a two-day period, spike a high fever or suddenly get listless and, you know, never get back on the tracks again. They're not making eye contact. They're emotionally overwhelmed. They're hitting their head against the wall for four hours a day. It's just overwhelming, you know, acute injury. If we look at that autism spectrum disorder, and, and over time, in 1975, we had one in 5,000 children in the United States diagnosed with spectrum disorder. By 2012, we were at one in 88. And so we had just gone through this extraordinary explosion, this logarithmic growth that started really to, in its steepest growth in 1998 to 2004 was when we really went through this kind of vertical from kind of a, a linear to logarithmic growth uh, of that epidemic. And in that time, of course, is when we made massive transitions with our food system. But at the same time, we saw cancer explode. At the same time, we saw Alzheimer's explode in, in women. We saw Parkinson's explode in men at the same rate as Alzheimer's in women. We saw the uh, neurologic conditions of MS, major depression, anxiety disorders. All of these things you know, went at the same time. So we had this fundamental loss of neurologic function and stability in children under the age of two all the way to geriatrics. 
And, and so this neurodegeneration was one side of it, but this sensory neural deficit of just not enough neurotransmitters and depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, sexual dysfunction, all of that all occurred in this same short, you know, 10-year period between 96 and 2006. And so this, this short 10-year period was this, this cataclysmic event where we moved from, you know, the most common diseases in the world at the time were, were still, you know, trauma and acute infection and things like this. And, that, and suddenly it was chronic disease across the board. To really put it in perspective, you know, if you take a look at childhood disease, you know, and its penetrance, in the 1960s, in, in the universal screening that we were doing at the beginning of some of the, the government care programs like Medicaid, um, in those initial screenings, we were seeing about 1.4, 1.6% of children with a chronic disease. And now, today, in the recent scans, uh, stu- uh, surveys done in the United States and Germany, um, we're seeing re- levels in the 52 to 54% range. So you wow. go from 1.4% to 54%. In, in literally a lifetime. And so in my short lifetime, I've seen diseases do that in children. And for me, I was lecturing on these numbers for years and years, but it really didn't come home and just hit me as to what, we, what have we done here until I was at uh, Texas Children's Hop- Hospital maybe two years ago now. And uh, you can't imagine the scale of this hospital system. And, and it's built to house our children with cancer. And so it's, it's six size skyscrapers, you know, set out across the Houston skyline. And so when you start to realize we're building entire municipalities to house our sick and dying children, it, you just, it, it is so striking and, and so painful to realize what we've done. Yeah, you know, it's so devastating because, you know, it's like if we don't get a handle on this, where are we going to end up? Yeah. Yeah, and you know this is such an interesting you know time. You know, all of you listening, you picked the tipping point of human history to show up right now, which is we should go into later probably that you're here on purpose. And so, yeah. as devastating as these numbers sound, and as desperate as this situation is, I believe we're being called to action to to create a huge paradigm shift in our viewpoint. So I, I want you to know that I am optimistic at some deep level of myself that there is a solution, that there is a path forward. However, it is important to realize that on our current trajectory, we can see not only our own extinction, but the ext- mass extinction of the planet. And so over the last 50 years, we've lost 50% of life on Earth. By some estimates, we're now losing 20 uh, species uh, to extinction every 20 minutes. Uh, we've seen a 10,000-fold increase in that, that baseline extinction rate over the last 30 years. And so these numbers are just so overwhelming and we can then chart out by both the rate of chronic disease and the collapse of human fertility, which we now see one in three males with, you know, sperm counts too low to be fertile. We see one in three women with some form of infertility. One in four women in the United States have some form of PCOS as a single condition. So it's just like an extraordinary burden on on reproductive so as you move through the collapse of reproductive capacity with the chronic disease burden on top of it, especially that chronic disease burden hit striking our children, uh, we see our own extinction somewhere 60 to 100 years out. And, and that's, that's extraordinary. It's, it's amazing to think that the children born today may not be able to hit the average lifespan of an American because they, the species right. is gone. And as I understand it, you think the microbiome, that is the ecosystem living inside of all of us, plays a big role in the risk to our species? 
Yeah, if you've been keeping an eye on just, you know, any, any journal, actually, it doesn't matter if it's a women's health journal at the grocery store all the way to a peer-reviewed science journal, uh, you pick up any of these now and you're seeing that gut health and the microbiome is mentioned all over the place. And yeah. so we now have been able to map through really the advent of widespread genetic screening. Now that we can do genomics on really rapid levels, we're starting to realize that at the root of human disease is a genomic song and dance going on between the species that allows us to thrive. More than 90% of the proteins that, that drive our, de our metabolism, our detoxification, our, our overall longevity and, and uh, regenerative capacity, more than 90% of those enzymes and those complex proteins that do all that work are not made by human cells, they're made by bacteria. And so, and, and that doesn't even start to take into account the much larger kingdom of the fungi. Uh, but suffice it to say, we are a, a ditzel really in the production of life within us. We, we are a vessel for life. We are not life uh, as, as a species. And so the species is containing this, this ecosystem. And this is where soil management becomes such a crisis because uh, over the course of the 1960s to 1970s, we started putting extraordinary amounts of petroleum chemicals and herbicides, pesticide, uh, small molecules into our food system, into our soil and water system, ultimately ending up in our food. That uh, really took off in the mid-1970s with Roundup, which debuted in 1974, but really didn't go into broad spectrum spraying it on fields until 76. But in 1976, we had this cataclysmic change in farming management. And the reason why it was so cataclysmic is we went from toxins like uh, Agent Orange and, and atrazine and things like this uh, to this glyphosate molecule, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, which functions as an antibiotic. And so in the 1970s, we started pouring antibiotics into our soil and water systems, not realizing that this was idiotic. We, at this time, we just thought germs were bad for us. We just assumed all bacteria were bad. We thought the human immune system was always trying to sterilize the human body. We had no idea that our bodies, our guts, our livers, our brain, our kidneys were relying on microbiome ecosystems within right. them. No idea. And so we thought we were sterile creatures that were beating back the microbiome. So if somebody in 1976 had said, why are you pouring antibiotics into the soil systems? 99%, 99.99% of scientists, physicians, you know, regulators would have said, why does that matter? We're, we're trying to kill the bacteria. It's good. And so even though they were kind of labeled weed killers, you know, and if we had gone ahead and labeled them, they did get patented as antibiotics ultimately. But if we had, even if we had called them antibiotics at the time, I don't think we would have blinked. I think we would have gone ahead and poured them in. But today, uh, what we didn't you know, anticipate in the 1970s is our ability to directly treat our food. Because up until 1996, we had to be pretty careful about what we were spraying because it would kill it. And so we, we were spot spraying weeds around the edges of fields. It was contaminating our water system and things like this. But we were being pretty careful as a farming industry. Homeowners were not being careful. By the 1980s, when Roundup was allowed to go direct to consumer, and we started pouring that, that you know, onto our sidewalks and into our gardens and everything else to kill weeds, the consumer pours way more Roundup, you know, per cubic meter than any farmer ever has because the farmer, it's, a, it's an input for their farm. It's a huge cost. Oh, yeah. Whereas the, the gardener buys five gallons and, you know, it's 30 bucks or whatever. And it's not that big of a deal to dump it all over the place. You can kill four or five you know, weeds in the cracks of your driveway with half a gallon of Roundup. It's an absurd amount of you know, losses down into our municipal water system. And glyphosate. 
the chemical in Roundup ends up seriously harming our gut health. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, it's detrimental to the entire microbiome. So you're, when you start to wipe out the microbiome in soil systems, it has a similar effect as to wiping out the soil of your, your organs uh, or of your gut in this case. And so when you wipe out the microbiome, you're really destroying the workforce. You're destroying the workforce that can go on to build the enzymes that will do the metabolism and breakdown of food to the detoxification to cell repair and all of that. So you eliminate through broad spectrum antibiotic use and the herbicides like glyphosate or Roundup, you start to eliminate that workforce and you get a, a, a deficiency across the board, deficiency of amino acids, which are your protein building blocks, deficiency of enzymes, a deficiency of you know, bioavailable minerals. All of this starts to break down. And so what you, you're really doing is you're eroding the foundation for biology on the planet. At wow. this stage, you know, you can remember those, you know, early Star Trek movies where that where Scotty would would beam beam Dr. Spock down on a planet and, you know, a couple minutes later, Spock in his very analytical voice would, would, would report back to Scotty that this planet can support life. And I remember just getting goosebumps as a kid, like thinking, oh my gosh, what if there's other worlds out there that could support life? But we're literally getting to the point on this planet where if, if, if we beamed Dr. Spock down here right now, he'd say, this planet's on the brink. This planet is not able to support life in the way that, that the Earth that we came from was just a few decades back. And so we're really destroying the fundamental structure of life on Earth. And this is why we see chronic disease explosion across every single organ system at the exact same rate that we see the extinction of species around us. This extinction is fastest in the microbiome, followed by the insects, followed by you know, the small uh, you know, amphibians and, and the frogs and all of this, followed by birds and, and the avians and then you know, larger animals in the jungles and all this. And so we're seeing this massive extinction rate. Most of these things we've never named. I think you know, the majority of these species we lose every 20 minutes to extinction. We don't even know what those are. We don't know what bacteria that was. We don't know why it was critical for human or biologic health on the planet. And so we're, we're just driving ourselves into this extinction event really out of, out of I would say, the male brain. The, the male brain is one of, of, of war and conflict. That, that's what we've been doing since our origin as a species is the male has gone out and killed anything that was threatening our species, not realizing that we were in fact in relationship to all of those mm. other species in ways we couldn't understand and we were driving it. But you give a male a backpack full of Roundup and say, go kill weeds. And we're like, <laughs> frontal lobe lights up. And it's like, ah, two pistol grip sprayers and we're going to kill everything. And it just like fires all of our neurons at once. And so it's like this incredibly difficult transition to take, you know, male farmers. And when we're out on the beat, you know, on these farms, it's the women that are driving this message home to their husbands that we have to change this farm. Don't you remember 15 years ago, we didn't have invasive weeds taking over our entire fields. We started spraying Roundup Ready crops with an antibiotic and now everything's Roundup resistant and we've got all these weeds that are taking over. We can't even harvest and we're losing the farm. Don't you remember when it was different? And it takes that, that you know, female archetype. The feminine archetype moves from this goal-oriented masculine archetype to a, a process-oriented archetype. And if we don't make that transition very soon to a process-oriented mindset where we start to teach farmers a process towards regeneration, a process towards nurturing soil systems and, and biodiversity, if we don't make that transition in this next kind of three to five years, we're going to have devastating results on the planet that may be irreversible in our, in our species experience.
So Dr. Zach, we've been talking a lot about the microbiome. Can you explain to me and the audience what all this actually means? We hear terms like leaky gut. Can you step back and walk us through this? Beautiful. Yeah, I, you would think that since you know almost every periodical you pick up today says something about gut health that we would really have this definition really nailed down. But if you ask 10 doctors or scientists, you know, what is, what is a gut and what is a gut health, you're going to come up with 10, 10 answers, I, I would say the majority of which are not going to hit the mark. The, the gut is, is not, uh, it's not a thing, if you will. We have this tendency to think, oh, there's this organ system of the small intestine, maybe, maybe you can include the stomach there. So yes, stomach, small intestine, colon is there to do all of this, you know, breakdown and composting of your food and turn it into nutrients. But in, in the end, it turns out it's, it's much more like an ecosystem of environments. And so just like a Costa Rican jungle or a coral reef, you expect there to be really definitive different environments or niches within that. And that's how the entire you know, gut you know, system really works is these different ecosystems that include microbiome, different populations of bacteria, fungi from, from millimeter to millimeter throughout the gut. And remember that the gut is huge in surface area. You're talking about two tennis courts in surface area. Wow. It's your largest exposure to the outside world. And yet every millimeter as you march through that gut is going to be different in its microbiome niche. And so just as the jungles are different in, in northern Costa Rica as they are in Colombia, you've got this you know, vastly different you know, shift in, in microorganisms over the course of that. But it doesn't stop within the lumen of the gut. It then moves to the lymph, which is... Uh, the lymphatic system that is one millimeter, you know, lays one millimeter deep to that entire, you know, gut lining, that one millimeter of depth is, it produces like 80% of the antibodies in your adaptive immune system. And it represents by volume some 60% of your entire immune system wow. of your body. And so that's your kind of next territory within this gut. And then the next one is the liver and the whole hepatic drainage system of your vascular system, your entire blood flow you know, every few minutes is trafficking through that gut. And so you have this massive coordination between a, a venous, you know, blood supply that's absorbing all these nutrients, taking it to the liver, which is the packaging center for the gut. And it's reorganizing everything into bionutrient availability and different packages of delivery systems to make smart deliveries across the bo body. So you're getting the right stuff to the brain and the kidneys and et cetera, et cetera. And so that whole coordinated system of, of stomach, but we could even start, I guess, north of that, sinuses, upper airway, upper respiratory system into the, the upper GI tract with the, the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, colon, gut barrier, immune system with the gut, the lymphatic system to the vascular and, and liver system. That's the whole matrix of this gut. And within that is this extraordinary relationship of millions of species. And, and when we say millions, we're probably not off. We used to think there was maybe 1,000 or 2,000 species of bacteria. There, there's over 1,500 species of bats. There's over 1,500 species of bat, butterflies. And so it's ridiculous to think that we ever were that micro, you know, we missed the boat so vastly. But now our estimates are up around 30 to 40,000 species of bacteria, maybe, you know, developing different, you know, niches within the ecosystem of the human body. We're probably still missing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of bacteria there. But then if you move to the, the larger organisms, the, the parasites, for example, there's like 300,000 species of parasites. There's, uh, you know, incredible tens of thousands or 100,000 species of protozoa. There's uh, 
upwards of three and a half to five million species of fungi, which can present as yeast, or they can present as, uh, as uh, hyphae or pseudohyphae, or they can produce uh, mycelium in the soil systems. So this incredible ecosystem, and again, you can harken back to that, you know, rich coral reef, which is now hard to find on the planet, and, you know, a healthy, really vibrant coral reef, or a jungle, which is, again, hard to find because we're cutting them all down to create monocrop corn soybean fields. And so as we create this monoculture in agriculture on the macro scale, we're also creating this monoculture within our own bodies, and we're losing wow. the intelligence of the gut. So... In that system of, of relationships, one of the interesting phenomena we've defined as what is gut and what is gut health is the health of boundaries between those different compartments. And so the boundary between uh, your stomach and small intestine is defined by a, a, a smooth muscle valve that allows stuff to traffic from the stomach into the small intestines at the right rate. And then there's a bunch of other valves that control the amount of bile and digestive enzymes and all that that get into the small intestine. So you have that kind of muscular valve you know division at the big kind of mechanical level of the gut but at the microscopic level of the gut you have these boundary events that are another, more gatekeepers they're not just like brick walls intelligent tiny little microscopic gatekeepers that are called tight junctions and these are like velcro that can open up and allow big big macromolecules like fiber or macro carbohydrates to enter the system and then zipper back up and that, that boundary event with, made by those tight junctions continues from the gut all the way into the vascular system. So the endothelium of the blood vessels are tied together with the same Velcro. The blood-brain barrier, again, tied together with the same Velcro. And the kidney tubules, again, tied together with the same Velcro. And so it turns out that when we start to talk about the destruction of gut health through chemical farming, we're going to talk about the boundary events that are going to happen in each of those organ systems as they start to collapse and we start to turn into a leaky sieve across those things. And so in the end, a healthy gut is defined as a vast microbiome ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, parasites, and the like, combined with this intelligent gatekeeper system that keeps everything to and fro flowing back and forth. And again, it's not boundaries. It's not like you know, the, the, the wall between us and Mexico. We're not trying to keep right. things out. We're trying to actually allow things in in an intelligent and controlled fashion so that there's health on both sides of the system. And so uh, that's ultimately where I think we have this exciting new paradigm is to realize that everything is dynamic, everything is in relationship, and nothing is, it functions in isolation. But this is more than just a stomach bowel problem. Gut issues actually foster serious diseases. Yeah, and, you know, it's fascinating now that, you know, as you pick up these medical journals, you're going to find that every single disease that we've named in this chronic disease epidemic ties back to an injury at the microbiome. And so the, the event of cancer or the event of autoimmune disease or the event of a neurodegenerative condition begins in the, in the gut microbiome. And so this is, again, where relationships starts to really, you know, r r raise its head. We, there's no such thing as human health. There's such a thing as ecologic health, and that ecologic health can run the incredibly complex mechanisms of soil, water, and air systems that keep the planet alive, or the soil, water, air systems between our breath, our gut, and you know, the vascular flow of our systems. We have the same soil, water, air relationship within our bodies as we do in the macro ecosystem. In the end, it doesn't function. None of those cycles really work unless you have this full, diverse ecosystem working. And it was in the late 2000s with the genetic research, and I was developing chemotherapy at the time with a very old antiquated model of, of how cancer you know, happens as a genetic injury and it 
accumulates genetic injuries and therefore needs to be killed. That was the paradigm I was working within. And so when these articles started to come out from UCSF and UCSD, these in these kind of hippie California schools, I was at University of Virginia, we, we fancied ourselves some sort of Ivy League school. So we thought, oh, these hippies out in California think that it has to do with probiotics or you know some sort of gut bacteria. It seems ludicrous. It didn't fit into any of our tr classical models of cancer or carcinogenesis. And so we would literally sit around our lab meetings weekly and kind of laugh about a few of these articles coming out. By 2014, it became just blatantly obvious that we had missed the entire boat on how cancer happens. Yeah. It is entirely embedded in the, not only the microbiome of the gut, but the microbiome within our organ systems. And so extraordinarily, something like breast cancer has now been defined as always a breakdown in, in, in the ecosystem of the breast, beginning with the loss of aerobic bacteria. And the dominant species in any woman's breast that you check is going to be sphingomonas, um, and it's a, a cousin to pseudomonas, which is one of the most feared bacteria in the, in the ICUs or, or hospital systems. And uh, this sphingomonas is really abundant in the human breast, it turns out. And as soon as the aerobic quality of that breast, as soon as we fail to start to deliver oxygen and energy in the same fashion, sphingomonas can't survive. And so we start to lose that, that microbial ecosystem. And in replacement, we get anaerobic bacteria, methylobacterium that move in. And we found methylobacterium in every single tumor checked, every breast cancer we, we looked at, whether they were ER positive, PR positive, negative, it didn't matter. They always had this one dominant bacteria that wasn't represented in the microbiome of the healthy breast. And so then the theory was, oh, well, it must be causing cancer. Maybe it's an infectious disease kind of process where the wrong bacteria gets set up and then you get breast cancer. So then they did the genomic sequencing uh, quantitatively to see that, you know, if there's tons of this bacteria, do you have a more aggressive cancer and does a woman die? In fact, it was the opposite. Methylbacterium was actually moving in to try to support this damaged ecosystem. And if you wiped out methylbacterium, the woman developed stage four metastatic cancer and died very quickly. And so in the end, the loss of microecosystem is, is linear and or logarithmic. And as you lose ecosystem, you're losing that physiology of life. You're losing that soil you know, vitality, the biophotonic energy that allows healing to happen. You can no longer take that plant you know, energy that's actually sun energy converted there. And now you can't make energy at the cell level and you, all of your enzymes start to slow down. And so without the, the fuel in the system, without the ability to transfer carbohydrates and fats into light energy, the mitochondrial level, you start to lose your, your biophotonic regenerative quality and, and just like a plant that suddenly looks green, looks green and you're doing all the right things and suddenly all the leaves are brown, that's a cancer cell. It's, it's, a, it's a cell that suddenly has lost its foundation of nutrients. It might be poured into the soil, but it can't transition that nutrient into the cell anymore. And it's that isolation of the cell that actually is the, the, the process of carcinogenesis or cancer cause, uh, the cancer pathology is the isolation of a human cell. When you can no longer get water and nutrients into the cell and no longer get information out of the cell, that's going to be a cancer. So the microbiome can affect our immune system, nervous system, chronic inflammation. Do all of these relate to separate problems in the gut or is it all one big problem? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's two schools of thought on this. There's certainly the pharmaceutical model, which is, oh my gosh, if we could just figure out which bacteria causes, you know, the loss of which bacteria causes which disease, we'll just go and replace that one species and see if we can fix the problem. Uh, I, I think that's the majority of people out there. The probiotic industry still is booming, even though we already know that probiotics are harming the ecosystem of the gut and actually are dumbing things down at the same rate that antibiotics do. 
even with all that data out there, we continue to to have faith that some capsule or, or you know pill is going to fix us, and and so we we have this you know delusion about uh, this reductionist you know uh, reality that we believe in in the allopathic pharmaceutical world that if we can just fix that one thing. I think, I don't know how many of us are out there who are thinking the opposite way, but at this point, I've really surrendered the, the possibility that we're ever going to find the one bacteria that's affecting any disease because it's never one bacteria. Yeah. Sphingomonas may be the primary bacteria that we're losing, but the loss of Sphingomonas is symptomatic of the collapse of an entire ecosystem. So it's, like, it's as if we went and said, well, the, the elephants are disappearing on the Serengeti, therefore, and there's breast cancer going up at the same rate. It must be the loss of elephants that's causing the breast cancer. And so if we try to dumb it down to a single species disappearing and therefore this happened, we're missing the real story, which is the biology as an ecosystem large event is starting to fail fundamentally. And for that failure, we're seeing these dominant species that should, should really represent a healthy, you know, uh, be metrics for a healthy ecosystem. They're the metric. They're not the definition of health. Uh, so sphingomonas never creates a healthy breast but a breast that creates an ecosystem that allows sphingomonas to be the most dominant species is a healthy breast. And so it's that kind of uh, belief system that I think myself and a lot of my colleagues are, are starting to buy into is, wow, this is not a story of, of you know, he done it. It's a yeah. story of, whoa, it, it's a story of ecosystem collapse. It's a, a story of coordination of the symphony of life rather than some sort of uh, micromanagement of it. We do colonoscopies endoscopies and so on but do we medically check out the microbiome is anyone doing this i think your point is so important and i wish you know this was this should be class one-on-one -on -one in medical school is we all of our screening tests are just waiting for the structural change to happen none of them are functional screening tests and so you know we could look at colonoscopy as a great example of that but also just like mammography a mammogram is a radiation test that exposes the breast radiation, which we know causes cancer. And we do that every year until a cancer shows up. That, that's our definition of a screening test. It's ludicrous. In the same way, you know, uh, you're looking at you know, something like CAT scans uh, to do whole body scans now to look for cardiovascular disease. And yet, you know, an incredible periodical came out from the American uh, Academy of Radiology around 2010, 2011, something like that. And they were looking, at, I think it was published in 2012, they were looking at the scans done in 2009 or 2010 in the United States and calculated the amount of radiation exposure from that. And from that, they determined that in 2009, there was enough CT scans done in the United States to cause 28,000 cancers. And so you start to look at this and you're like, we are literally causing the epidemic by our, our, our testing because we're looking for the functional endpoint or the symptom of a collapse of biology when a tumor finally appears. When we could actually see that happen decades earlier through different screening tests. So that's what our clinic has really been working on since 2010 is asking those questions like, well, how do we look 20 years in advance instead of just waiting for the event to occur and then we're screwed? And, and the answers are very exciting in that even bef before the microbiome starts to shift visibly, the electrophotonics of the body starts to shift. And so in our clinic, we started using a, a camera uh, developing in Russia that images the human energy field. And when you see different sectors of the human energy field start to collapse, unable to create electrophotonic energy, 
you know that there's now a loss of energy production in that system and a propensity for disease to develop in that system. And so if you look down at that energetic level, you get a very, very early imprint. And I looked horrendous. The first time I got one of these scans, it was probably 2011, 2012, I looked nearly dead. I looked like a pretty healthy doc. I was you know, plant-based. I was doing all the right things, normal body weight. Everybody, I think, you know, thought I was a little too skinny, but otherwise he seemed pretty healthy. Cholesterol was ridiculously low. My blood pressure was perfect. Like by all, you know, allopathic measures, I was perfect. And yet I was a disaster. And if you had backed up to ask, you know, what's your energy level? I would have told you I was a disaster. I was, I was trying to run my own company. I was working seven days a week. I was, you know, building my own house at the time. I was like working 120 hours a week and wasn't sleeping well, wasn't eating well, I wasn't eating enough, I wasn't drinking enough, I was dehydrated all the time, and that showed up on this energy scan. And so in the end, we're gonna to start to look at biophotonics as a better tool, and you know, the tool that we use, I think, is just you know, infantile. I think that over the next 10, 20 years, we're gonna see much better versions of these and that'll become much more accurate in the future. Um, but the biophotonics was a big breakthrough. The other thing that we use for very early detection of where you're at on this trajectory from health to, to collapse or, or, or death, is uh, a very simple measure of the electrical energy held across a cell membrane, and that's something called the phase angle. It, look, it looks kind of like the leads you get on an EKG, those little stickers that go on your chest for an EKG. We can put those on the wrist and the ankle and lay you perfectly flat and then measure the, the resistance across your body and then put that in with your BMI, your, your body mass index, with your height, your weight, your age, all these things, and then the algorithm spits out a phase angle number. And optimal health is around 10 to 13 on your phase angle. Death happens around 3.5. I've only seen one person alive with a number lower than 3.5, and that was like a 3.2. I've never seen somebody alive with, with a number less than uh, three. And so optimal health at 10, death at three. Interestingly, cancer shows up at four. And so wow. you have to be nearly dead biophotonically, energetically, and at your capacity to have, you know, produce electrical charge across the cell membrane before cancer will even show up. And hmm. so when we're just doing these scans, waiting for the cancer to show up, all we're doing is watching the trajectory going down and we'll say, oh, you're almost dead. We're going to now give you chemo radiation and surgery, which of course isn't going to change the line. And they can cut out the cancer. And if you see the way that we, we trick this through statistics, we, when we do a chemotherapy study, we say, oh, we changed breast cancer mortality by 15% with this new chemotherapy. And that's enough to get the FDA to approve it. Never mind that placebos get about a 30% response. But 15% wow. is enough for a chemotherapy to get it approved. But all we did was show death from breast cancer. If you look at the same study, if they will publish it, and oftentimes they won't, but if you demand the numbers on all-cause mortality, you find out that we didn't change the trajectory at all because this was the trajectory that ends at death we didn't do anything to change the electrical potential of the cell. We didn't do anything for the biophotonic health of that individual. We didn't do gut health. We didn't do, you know, uh, metabolic recovery of the, of the mitochondria. All we did was cut out the symptom. And then the person died at the same space and time because we, we treated a symptom, which was cancer. Cancer is not a disease. Just like the snot that you get from a cold, the snot didn't cause the cold. The snot is the reaction of your immune system clearing a bunch of cells that need to be turned over. The cancer... Wow is the manifestation of a cell system that needs to be turned over, that needs to be replaced thoroughly, needs to be cleaned out. And if we just clean it out and then don't fix the terrain around it, the person's going to die at the same moment. And so these are the future you know, studies that we will do. I think that it will be normal in another 10 or 20 years for you to get a phase angle and a biophotonic 
energy image of your body. It's nice because it's totally, both are totally passive. None of them give you radiation. None of them are affecting any disease process. And I hope we really phase CT scans out as, as a kind of a last step rather than a, a, you know, some sort of diagnostic tool. It's ludicrous that we're trying to give calcium scores for cardiovascular disease while giving you cancer. Um, yeah. These are bad, bad, bad trade-offs. I know you're working directly with farmers to fix our food supply. Can you tell us what you've been doing? Absolutely. Yeah, so in 2012, I started a, bio, a biotech company that was working on uh, creating a, a system for extracting communication network from microbiome of soils uh, to recover human health. And it blew our minds. We had no idea what we were getting into. It's taking us on this incredible journey into the, the sheer potential of human health. We are just scratching the surface you know, ultimately of knowing it. But so in 2014, we put this line of supplements on the market for gut health that we're really getting at this fundamental communication network between the microbiome and that tight junction Velcro system and doing all these dramatic things. And it was mind blowing. It's exactly what any doctor would dream of is like having an opportunity to participate in a, a revolution of, of mindset and everything else. But it was really intense to realize that no matter how extraordinary this discovery was that nature had a solution to Roundup, that we could reverse Roundup damage, we, there was no way we were ever going to produce enough supplement fast enough to get the world treated because the rate of Roundup exposure is at 6 billion pounds a year by some estimates, certainly 4.5 billion pounds is a conservative estimate. So when you think about four and a half billion pounds of a toxin going into your soil, water, and air systems, and they are in all three of those because it's a water-soluble molecule. And so you can measure glyphosate in, in the air you breathe, 75% of the air in the United States, 75% of the rainfall contaminated with this molecule. And so when you start to look at that scale, you realize pretty quickly that, you know, I could be the best doctor in the world. I'm never going to prevent disease. I could be the best supplement maker and I'm never, never going to fix all the disease. And so we decided to, to apply all of the, the money that we were getting out of that to root cause solutions for the planet rather than just humans. And if we don't start to really consider ourselves within the ecosystem of the planet, we're going to kill it faster. Because if we just go and fix human health today so that we live longer and have more babies, we kill the planet faster. So we literally have to change the way in which we live on this world before we prevent the extinction event. It doesn't matter how healthy we try to make humans, we have to change our relationship to the planet. And so much of the money that uh, we've envisioned on how to go is now going back towards these root cause solutions for farmers. And so we're creating soil amendments to help you know, clean glyphosate out of our soil and water systems. We're creating all of those. But in the end, it's really around education and awareness. And so we created a nonprofit, farmersfootprint.us is the website. Farmers Footprint is, is an awareness campaign as well as an infrastructure campaign. So we're starting to put into place a venture studio to, to do seed capital for uh, in, innovative technologies that need to be created for farmers to more rapidly make the transition from chemical farming into regenerative agriculture and the rest. But what I really want to imbue in, in the audience right now is this message of hope and excitement and that when we see a farmer make the transition just for one year, not even a full year, just one season, if they will not plow and spray in the fall and they'll let the soil recover without any plowing, they need the mycelium and the fungal structures recover and the bacteria and all that, and then they don't spray or plow in the spring, but in, instead they do seven or ten species cover crop, and then instead of spraying that dead with Roundup and then planting their crop, you have them either roll or crimp that down, so they're just rolling down that, that create an armor on top of the soil, or they, they send cattle into the field to do the rolling and crimping for them. And then they, they use a seed drill to drill down through all of that, 
pressed down stuff instead of a plow to break up all the soil. Now a seed drill delivers all that seed and within that one season, by the end of that summer, they're going to see more earthworms than they've seen in three generations. They're going to see more life returning. The, they're going to see birds, bats, owls, all of this life, fox, you know, this whole ecosystem is going to explode out of this farm that is in the middle of hundreds of thousands of miles of genetically modified monocrop. You can create these islands of biodiversity that just explode and it just defies. It's like, how does the fox in thousands of miles of Kansas corn find that one regenerative farm? And they do. And it's beautiful. And so all I know, because I, it's too mysterious to really know how mother nature does that. All I know is life is more exuberant and more Ex explosive in its capacity than any of the death that we would engineer. And so it, it's really exciting to me that that same thing happening on a farm happens in our patients. We, we do something wow. called Intrinsic Health Series, an eight-week program online where we take clients through eight weeks of, of changing their soil structure, their water structure, their air structure. And in changing soil and water and air in that client, we see in, in four weeks, eight weeks, these transformations of health happen just as we do on the farm. And so whether it's a farm or a human, I want you to know that biology is more resilient than our insanity. And uh, there's a real hope for us to see life in a more abundant state, in a more resilient state. We see longevity and you know, the potential for vitality on levels we've never experienced before, very possible in these next decades rather than extinction. That, that, is, that is so fascinating. I, I it, am hoping that more farmers are, are joining you in, in that, that uh, it sounds like the, uh, every, that the evidence is so positive that I would hope more and more of them. Um, They're uh, coming in droves now. <laughs> that is so great. That is so great to hear. Okay. So we're going to move real quickly to uh, some audience questions. And the one that, that they will not let me not ask you <laughs> is about your famous four minute workout. So tell us about it, what it does. Tell us about your four minute workout. And basically we'll, we'll put something, we'll put a link in the show notes. So they'll, you know, can absolutely see where to get to it. Awesome. Yeah. This is a powerful tool I developed about six or seven years ago. Um, you never know what's going to really change the world. And this was not what I was expecting was going to change the world, but it became our most popular asset we've ever put online. If you go to YouTube and look at my name, Zach Bush MD, or it sounds like you'll have it in the show notes, but uh, Zach Bush MD and four minute workout, you'll find it on YouTube for you. And it's just a, a quick 12 minute tutorial on how to do this four minute workout. Um, but it moves the 16 largest muscles in your body for 90 seconds in, in a quick cycle in an effort to release nitric oxide, which is the only redox molecule the human body makes. And, and it puts it in a reservoir of the endothelium, the, the lining of all your blood vessels. And it, it is uh, communicating with the mitochondria. And so it's this beautiful communication network that exercise releases to interact with your microbiome. And so it's the one way in which we can engage that microbiome and explode it. And the other way is through breath work. And so the, you know, breathing and this explosive exercise is the way to get this whole interaction going where you can really get that biophotonic energy exploding. And we've had people in nursing homes you know, have extraordinary results with the four-minute workout. We've had whole companies demand that their, their staff do it twice a day during the workday, and they see an increase in sales and productivity within the company in, in six weeks. And so it's just amazing how biophotonic energy really does transfer and transform human potential. And so the four-minute workout is a fun way to find out how youthful you can be at the cellular level, regardless of age or, or current function. Okay. All right. Nelda.com team, get ready. We'll be doing our four-minute workout. So, okay. The other question uh, from the audience is that one of your board certifications is hospice care. 
you had some amazing experiences in that and you learned a lot from your end of life patients. What'd that teach you? <laughs> yeah, that could be a, another hour and a half there. So, um, but in a nutshell, when we start to realize that we are spiritual beings rather than human beings, it really changes the algorithm, right? And so if we say there's 7.8 billion people on the planet, the human mind can't wrap around that. We, can, we can't really comprehend 7.8 billion people. And it sounds like we have a, an overpopulation problem. It sounds like this or that. And it sounds like, oh, this is why we're having so many problems. This is why the Gates Foundation is trying to limit population growth because it's our primary problem or whatever it is. It sounds like a real issue until you realize, wait, that's 7.8 billion souls. Those are ancient you know, beings that are presenting in this particle moment of, that we call human life where they transition from light energy beings, you know, angels or spirits or souls or whatever your viewpoint I can tell you in the ICUs when you watch somebody die or in the home in a hospice patient's position and you see the light energy disappear from a body, it's very, very palpable. Uh, you don't need to check their pulse. You know when somebody just died. And, and so when we go through the, the motions of, of checking and confirming a moment of death, it's, it's just checking the boxes because you know physically you can feel the shift as the energy disappears from that body. And so I think it's extraordinary uh, to see that. And then when you resuscitate somebody in the ICU and pull them back, you realize they're already in, in their next life form. They are already in this journey on the other side of this veil that we call physical life. And they see such beauty and they see such miraculous acceptance of who they are. And they see such miraculous realization of their purpose and how everything has been perfect. Not, nothing was out of place. And when you take that and now extrapolate it, it means that we need the journey of poisoning our, our, our planet to the point of extinction so that we can do our next thing. Humans don't change without you know, the pressure cooker being turned on. We don't wake up one morning and say, I feel great, but I think I'm going to change everything. We just don't do that. And so we have to have this cataclysmic pressure on us to, to you know, change our behavior. And at this moment, it's this extinction pressure that we've created. And, and this extinction event is our opportunity to change more and more dramatically than we ever have before. And so we are in our hospice moment. And as a species, we can uh, you know, ex anticipate with actually joy and, and a sense of spiritual hope about the light on the other side of the veil. When we go extinct as a species, we're gonna expand back into our full light purpose and we will have extracted from this human experience whatever we needed to. But I would love to know that that's millions of years in the future instead of 60 years in the future. I would love to think that my children are going to have a role in bringing grandchildren and great-grandchildren into the world so that they can participate in a particle moment and a soul journey and on purpose in human bodies to participate in this co-creative journey. And so that's really, I think, what you're going to see unfolding in this future is an opportunity for us to really connect into full spiritual potential through a cataclysmic biologic crisis. Well, thank you so much. I really do want to tell you, thank you for your time. Thank you for all your work. And uh, uh, we want to talk about real quick, we want the, everybody to know that you have your, your Ion Biome, which is your product, correct? That uh, we'll have a link to that as well uh, with a 15% discount um, here. And uh, I, I, they should anticipate a lot of changes in their, in their life with that. And I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, Thank you, especially for the work you do with farmers uh, and, and the way you care about individuals. So they can find you at ZachBushMD.com, correct? That's it. Right. I'll find okay. you the whole education portfolio there. Oh, yeah. I could talk to you for hours, but thank you so much for the time. 
Thank, thank you, Dr. you for Sam. having me on, Nelda. <laughs> Appreciate the whole team. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Bye-bye.